Welcome to another episode of Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO communications. Our topic today is how to create an irresistible brand as a startup founder. And our guest is no other than Jack Singh, the former managing director of Textiles Berlin, serial investor and an absolute one of the most knowledgeable people about startups I know. Hey, Jack. Oliver, thanks for having me. It's, it's an absolute pleasure, and thanks thanks to you spending some time with me this morning. Um, we want to talk about creating an irresistible brand. Why is that important for a startup founder? This is an area that a lot of founders find challenging, partly because there isn't a whole lot of information out there. Um, you know, they can only judge or they can only evaluate how to do this by looking at what's already been put out. The problem is this, this, you know, communications is generally something where you only see the tip of the iceberg and you don't see 90% of the work being done in the background. And so I think it's really, it's really hard for founders. And, and I can speak from experience. When I was building my first few startups, this was a really, really challenging area, not just in terms of setting the strategy, but then also thinking about how I might bring in people to execute a strategy. And when I became an investor, I, I realized that these problems were actually applicable to every single startup out there. Is it because a founder usually has a good idea about the product or service they want to build, but much less of an idea what the brand will look like and how to communicate the brand? There's a couple of ways that you could think about that. One is actually the founder may have an idea in their head, but translating that out into uh, spoken words and then having that understood by others, which is the the key driver behind communicating here that's hard for for some people some people have it really easy and some people can just do it you know on on almost on the fly and then it's also about thinking about how your communication strategy affects the growth of your company over a period of time so things that you say to your customers should then be passed on to other potential customers things that you say to your investors should go back and feed back into your customers potentially. It's actually about a way of thinking holistically about communications so that all the different components interconnect as you start thinking about how to lay out a strategy for communications. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, one of the questions we always get is why do most startups fail? And what differentiates a future unicorn from a run-of-the-mill startup that goes nowhere? And the answer often is communications, funnily enough. Um, I love this quote by Ben Horowitz, who once wrote that as a company grows, its biggest challenge always becomes communications. And I think it's clear to us that no raging success has been built on bad communications. You're right, Oliver. And there's a lot of advantages and benefits that you can derive from having a strong brand. But let me throw that question back at you. How do you know if you have a strong brand? Where, where do you aim your sights on? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, so what is a strong brand? A strong brand means that you uh, it kind of injects these emotional associations with your brand. So if I think a particular brand of positive associations, and the associations should be the ones that the brand intended for me to have. So what do people think about me and my company when I'm not in the room? And that's that's incredibly important because um, we have to compete on something, right? You're building a company, you have to compete on something. Yes, you need a great product that is without question, but you also want to compete with a strong brand because otherwise you're simply competing 
competing um, uh, either on price, which you don't want to do as a startup because a bigger company, established company, maybe have a, a lower unit cost and lower cost, uh, you know, uh, in, in general, that they have economies of scale that startups don't have. So you don't want to compete on price necessarily. Um, and yes, you want to compete on product, but the product people need to try out the product and there need to be, needs to be a good reason for people to try out the product and maybe choose your product over other products in the market. And that's where these brands, where the brand and the associations come in really. So brands are the intangible associations that people have whenever they come across your company, product or service. And it's, it's difficult to grasp because like gravity, a brand is always there, but you know, you can't really touch it. Um, but you know, even if we can't rationally explain why we choose certain brands over others, um, you know, they're there, they are important. It's not a rational area, and this is maybe why some founders struggle with this, uh, even though we often rationalize when it comes to brand. Oh, you know, I choose that kind of phone or that kind of computer because, you know, for those reasons. But I think in those cases, we rationalize. We're not being rational. What we do is we like the brand and what the brand stands for. And I think this is this is what we need to think about as a startup founder. So the first, first question I would pose myself is, well, do we create a promise brand or do we create uh, a belief brand? A promise brand is a brand which says, okay, you know, my product does X, Y, and Z. And so, okay, cool, I want that, so I'm going to buy it. Or do you have a belief brand or purpose brand which starts out from its own beliefs? Patagonia, for instance, or Apple, think different, right? So you start with certain beliefs about the world and the customer and your relationship with the customer, and only then you fill this with promises of what your brand does. So that would be a first step. And my recommendation, as you probably deducted, is I would always try to create a purpose brand if if you know your product or your, your industry allows that, allows you to do that. But usually these promise brands, sorry, these belief brands are way stronger than promise brands because they believe in something in addition to just promising you something about the product. The, the best part of this is as a founder, the easiest thing to sell is your belief system. As a investor, the easiest thing to buy is someone else's belief system. And so it really does make sense to be able to articulate your North Star. This term's thrown out a lot, so much. I probably see it in 50% of the decks that I review and I'm looking at over a thousand slide decks a year these days. The brands that have very successfully articulated and communicated their North Star as it evolves and and what that North Star stands for within the context of you know the the audience that they're they're talking to are actually the ones that are the most valuable today. So there is a lot of truth in what you're saying, Oliver. Yeah, th- thank you. And, and the way you know we can think about this, about creating a minimum viable brand, is by understanding that your minimum viable brand is very much like an MVP, your minimum viable product. So as you can deduct from the name, a minimum viable brand is similar to a minimum viable product, just it's about the brand and not the product. And these are obviously the two most important things that you need when you build, because you need something to sell, you need to build something, and then you need to go to market and make sure you find customers for this, who pay you some money for it, otherwise you don't have a business. Okay, now I think before we take that step and create that minimum viable brand, we need to understand that people don't necessarily buy what you are selling. These are two different things. You sell one thing, but your customers will buy another, at least in their minds, right? Absolutely. And and that's exactly what we're trying to... Uh, that, that, that distance between what people claim they're buying versus what you're selling 
that gap is what we're trying to shorten here. Because if you can get your customers to describe the product the way that you, know, you would internally, you've achieved whatever objectives you'd set out. Um, and as a business, you fundamentally want to be aligned with your customers at, at every juncture. People often talk about Salesforce, right? Salesforce is in the business of selling software. But their customers don't really just buy a CRM. They're buying more sales. They're buying an outcome. And that's why sales is part of the name, not CRM. We don't call it CRM force. We call it Salesforce. Everything they do from their annual conference to their slogan and their messaging is centered around the customer-centric message that we, as Salesforce, will help you sell more. So even though they're providing software, what the customers are buying is more sales. Right, and uh, you know, there's the saying, right, that uh, no one wants a quarter-inch drill. What they really want is a quarter-inch hole in the wall. And I think we would challenge that and say, no one wants a hole in the wall. What they want is a picture on the wall. And this is what they are buying when they're buying a quarter-inch drill, a picture on the wall. And it's important to understand the difference. What will people actually use your product for? And what will they uh, get out of it? What, what's the underlying reason for them to buy it? Is it sales, for instance? Is it a picture on the wall? Is it clean shave? You know, you're selling razor blades, but may they, they, they actually buying a clean shave. Um, so so it's, it's important to think about it that way, to really think it through from the customer's or client's perspective. And this is often lacking when people build a brand. Uh, and, and, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is an important fundamental concept that we should all internalize. So, Jack, now that we internalize that and we kind of know what a brand is, we know why a brand is important for a startup. And we know that a brand is not just about what we want to say, but really about what the customer is going to use our product or service for. And we need to uh, really think about the customer here. How do we go about and create that minimum viable brand? It's very similar to the way that you would create a minimum viable product. You start with something very, very basic. You start with the, the core of the product. You don't have to build out the entire product. You just build out the bits that are relevant, the bits that you can sell, the bits that someone can buy, and the bits that someone can understand and actually use. And it's the exact same concept here. You start with your brand hypothesis. And then you combine that with customer feedback to achieve your minimum viable brand. Now, this may come across as a little bit complicated if you don't quite understand what a brand hypothesis is. And, and that's effectively just the very basic positioning statements of who you are, what you do, and why you do what you do. Right. Um, so you, you create that hypothesis, right? You have a rough idea what your brand stands for, for whom it is. And then you go and talk to customers, right? Totally. It's, it's as straightforward as that? It, it is exactly as straightforward as that. Now, the, there are nuances and there are certain ways that you want to do this. You Obviously, when in the same way that when you're... <clears throat> now, the, the, the what you're doing is actually pretty simple, but how you do it can get pretty complicated. And then, again, it's important to understand why you're doing this. You, you're the... We'll get into the why a little bit later, but for now, for the how, you also need to think about how other people think about your brand, right? What's the first thing that they might think of immediately? And if you if you put that at the very base layer of, of your brand, then it, the next level 
makes it easier for you to understand how to communicate your differentiation from your customers, from your competitors, or or people, or or um, from from your from your from your competitors, or or yeah. Let me say. And and once you have that in place, it's much easier to go on to the next level and next layer to start thinking about the differentiation between you and other players in the market and your competitors in essence. And then finally, as you've mastered that differentiation, that's when you can start extending this identity across different products, across different types of customers, across all sorts of audiences and stakeholders. So whenever we talk about founders, there is an implicit association that, that comes up in some people's minds of, of you know, very early stage founders and not founders of companies that have already exist that may have dozens, if not hundreds of employees. I'd love to talk about the, the founders that have already built some semblance of a brand and, and have deployed resources into building the brand. But, but first, let's talk about the ones that are just starting out, the ones that have literally a bank, blank piece of paper in front of them. What, what's their trigger to building a brand? What, what are the things that they can do immediately? I think the best trigger is to think about the name for your company or product. That, that usually gets us going, right? That gets us to think about all the different possibilities and associations. And, you, you know, you should do this, I think, in a group setting. Uh, yes, you can brainstorm with yourself, but usually there's a team of founders and it makes sense for them to come together and think about this and really take this seriously because it will trigger the thinking about, you know, what the brand identity is. You come up with a name and then you think, oh, you know, that doesn't sound right. or doesn't feel right. And I, I, I advise startup founders to really take those feelings and hunches seriously because if it feels wrong to you it probably feels wrong to customers as well and it may not be the name itself it may just be the name uh, is not right for this particular project or idea right uh, plus many names have already been taken so that's that's another challenge you have to go through but but most importantly is you know start unencumbered and think about what would be a great name for this company I usually go to uh, you know start to read up on the topic I look at what the competition's talking about I, I do word association plays with founders and at some point you have a list of terms that you know sound kind of right and you don't have to settle there and then so I'm, I'm just going through this process now with a business I help build and we did customer tests first and I said to the some of the other founders who, who said okay let's let's use this as a brand I said hang on we haven't spoke to a single customer let's talk to customers and then decide what the brand is we have a hypothesis but let's get some feedback and this is really what this formula is you get to your brand by creating a brand hypothesis we believe our business has these associations or should have these associations and could be named one of these you know different names uh, and then you get feedback and say ah okay actually customers use in a different way there are different use cases here there are different um, needs customers that we had not anticipated and of course that's totally normal just like you're building an MVP you're building an MVP you're building um, building up the knowledge you need to really create that brand and you know it's like an MVP also in the sense that it's not final it will evolve over time but still we want to settle at some point on the name on the brand uh, identity uh, so there's a first step where you really create it and then there's a second phase where it continues to evolve but how do you do this with um, 
startups and founders who've already created a brand and maybe have already, a, you know, maybe at a scale up phase, can, can they still apply these principles? Or is this, do you think this is for, for early stage only? Uh, you're absolutely right. It's actually not just relevant for super early stage founders. It's also relevant for founding teams or executive teams that are, are in startups right now that have already, that can be considered mature. So I'm really glad you mentioned this, Oliver, and I'm really glad that you mentioned customers because it is at the core of how you build a brand, but it's also how a brand that's already in existence. If you're a if you're an executive team at a startup that's been running for a few years now, your job is to better understand your customers because, well, one, that's how you're going to grow your business, but actually, that's also how you're going to extend and grow your brand. Think about it with a quadrant where you have the customer before they find you, before they even know about your company's existence. How do they describe the problem that they're 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 facing? And, and then once they found you, but haven't purchased anything from you, you haven't purchased a, a product or a service, how do they talk about you? And then once they've purchased a product or service from you, how do they then talk about what you do? And your job is to make the gaps between those quadrants as minimal as possible. Essentially, you want to end up with all four quadrants overlaying and overlapping on top of each other and, and not being indistinguishable. So kind of a seamless brand experience, right? That's what we're after. Totally. And and so in in as you think about the industry, you know, what are the opportunities for for brand building? Right at, at in each of those quadrants, that's essentially what what we're trying to get at, and that's the bit that takes a lot of time, effort, precision, but also patience. Jack, I, I know you're a big advocate of go and talk to your customers as an investor and as as a startup mentor. Do you think startups at scale up do this enough? And is there a particular process they should apply to talk to their customers? Well, Oliver, you're asking a, a, an investor, and, and I think my favorite answer to give is always no. So in this case, no, they're definitely not doing it enough. Even at the scale-up stage, when they actually, when, when companies have customers and sometimes have hundreds of customers, they might think that they're actually talking to a lot of customers, but they're not. They're still talking to a very, very self-selecting pool or very limited universe of, of customers or, or maybe even investors or stakeholders in this case. And so there are a few ways to approach this. There are a few different frameworks that you can use. Um, the two that I often use when I'm evaluating a company are relevance and, and differentiation. So on the relevant side, how do you matter to your audience, whether that's your investor base or your customer base or your maybe even your internal uh, audience of your employees and co-founders or your shareholders? How does this brand pass that hurdle compared to others in a similar space? And that's the differentiation aspect. So you've got relevance on one side and then differentiation on the other. And those are generally the two ways that, that you know, I use to evaluate how a company might be thinking about approaching this. And, and if so, is this the best team to approach it? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And get help if you, you know, not sure about it, because there's people specialized in this. But I think the main, the key absolutely is go to talk to your customers, not just uh, once at the beginning or once when it's all set up, but, you know, do this on an ongoing basis. And it doesn't really matter uh, as long as you do it and you, you sort of learn from that and help your brand evolve as, a, as part of the process. Completely agree. And I, I really appreciate that you mentioned needing to get help because a lot of people forget that 
when you're building a company, you're actually building a universe. You're not just building a singular entity. You're actually part of a universe. And there are a lot of other stakeholders involved that might be able to help you not just think of a, a brand strategy and, and, and build it, but also deploy it and execute it. And that's everyone from your existing employee base to your existing investors and shareholders. Not only do they have a vested interest to ensure that you build the strongest brand possible so that they may also benefit, but actually they may have suggestions and they may have takeaways and they may have input that you will likely have missed because you're looking at the world in a very specific way. Right. And, and that, that's a really good point. Often founders ask, OK, how do we do this? When the real question is, who? Who could we do this with? Who can help us with this? Who should we ask? Uh, as in so many uh, you know, different aspects of building a company. Now, sometimes brands are just off. They're not working. And you would advise founders to rebrand. When, you know, how do you know whether it's time to rebrand and the brand is just not right um, or maybe it's just a case for evolving the brand. You know, how, how do you know this? The easiest way to answer that is to think about it. Think about your brand as a symbol or product or, or, or specific, maybe even a specific person. If your customers can't describe or articulate your brand as a person or a symbol or a product, then that's the point where you might need to start thinking about a rebrand. Now, a rebrand doesn't just mean changing your name or changing your logo or you know changing the top letter domain of, of your domain name. It might actually be something as simple as just using a different set of words. It might be something as simple as just changing the way you make others feel when you communicate your brand. It might just be changing the the method of communication. There's a few different ways of thinking about rebrand. Um, but for, for me, I think the easiest way to think about it is, or the easiest way to think about when to do a rebrand is when you are getting feedback and you are picking up signals from the market that your brand isn't working. Now, the the nuance here is that you're always going to be picking up signals that your brand isn't working. And so it's it's important for you to understand that it may not be your brand that's actually not working. It may just be the way, it may be the messenger, it may be the method of communication that's not working here. Right, yeah. And that's the tricky part to find out, right? And, and what I find is that um, if it is really the brand that isn't working, customers have the wrong association with it. Um, if you have no association, you can try to fill it with life, you know, create a word, an artificial word, and try to fill it with life. But if you're using an existing word in a particular context, then people just have the wrong association. I remember you and I have been in contact with a startup that used the word burn in the brand name. And, uh, you know, the associations were just wrong for the product. And, uh, you know, we and others advised them, no, you need to change this because um, people would think you're something else and may not even want to try your product because they have a negative association so we need to come up with something as a positive association um, another example would be uh, you know something i've been involved in and, and you know i was pretty much in favor of a particular word um, that would be perfect to describe what the brand is supposed to do for the customer or what they would be buying but 
we would have to change the spelling and therefore make it a bit, um, you know, hard to find. Uh, a lot of risk of confusion on Google. Um, people probably wouldn't know how to spell the brand unless they've been really exposed to it. Um, and again, we, we decided not to go with that, even though it could have been a perfect brand name, but uh, sort of a weird spelling wasn't the right way to go. And it would have potentially caused some, you know, confusion and maybe wrong associations. Yeah. Oliver, as, as we talk about associations, what about associations with your competitors or people you're trying to differentiate yourself from? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, you can do that. that that's a really good point. Um, I help build EasyJet across Europe and the name EasyJet means, you know, we fly and it's easy to fly with us. And, you know, the company was founded in 1995 as a competitor to, you know, British Airways, Lufthansa, Air France, etc. And at the time, flying with these incumbents was perceived to be complicated and expensive so it wasn't easy at all so easyjob was specifically set up or the brand was specifically conceived to highlight to the customer that it's easy to fly with us it's not complicated you don't have to go to a travel agent and go you know jump through all these hoops and do all these complicated things that you have to do with the flag carriers at the time and the success of that approach you can see across the board now because all airlines at least in europe use that model that easyjet pioneered in the middle of the 90s of direct sales you know focusing on the web um you know just just simplify the process quick turnarounds etc etc so it has been very successful and the company is one of the biggest airlines around now because it was built on the assumption or built on the promise uh, and on the belief that flying should be easy and affordable for everyone. And that's that's part of the reason why this company has grown so much and has become successful. Now, take Ryanair. Ryanair, you know, the, the founder was called Ryan. Um, it's the other best, big low-cost carrier in Europe. The founder was called Ryan, so it's called Ryanair. Um, they, they basically took took a name that could be any name, anyone's name and filled this with meaning. So you don't have to go down the route of commenting on the market and your competition, but it's definitely an avenue that's open to you. And in some cases, it can be very successful. The Virgin brand is another great example. Virgin, you know, the Virgin brand has been applied to many different sectors, but the speciality of the Virgin brand is to take on incumbents in entrenched industries and say, you know, whether that's finance, airlines, gyms, uh, record stores at the time, you know, uh, there are big incumbents and we can do this better with a fresh approach. So that that's that's always been their sort of key to brand success in my view. I've always thought whenever I heard of all the stunts that Richard Branson pulled when they were starting out that it was such a rebellious brand and such a rebellious positioning uh, against the the incumbents. Um, I, 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 you know, I think Richard Branson is one of my favorite brand artists who just happens to also be an incredible businessman. One of the things that I've loved about the Virgin brand is how actually Richard Branson also embodies that rebellious nature and that, that rebellious streak runs through not just their communication, but the way that the brand is visually presented, the way that the brand makes you feel, the way that you, know, you might you might hear a certain tone of music or a certain type of music when you're on hold with their customer service team. All that fits in so well with with everything else that they do. And I think it's it's a great example of a brand and a positioning to aim for, for if you're a founder. Yeah, and I guess Virgin, when it was set up in the in the seventies, um, just using the word Virgin for your brand, it was probably considered quite cheeky and, and you know tongue in cheek, and and that's I'm sure how how it was intended. So fresh, but also you know cheeky, rebellious. Yeah, that's a great point. So, Jack, before we wrap up, um, 
you know, I'm just just thinking of the main takeaways for me, what you said, and it's I think for for startup founders and also at a later stage, go and talk to your customers because the way you get to your brand is not by just coming up with it by yourself, but by formulating a hypothesis about your brand, talk to your customers and then refine it. So in a way you can say your brand is your brand hypothesis plus customer feedback, similarly to how you create your minimum viable product. Most definitely. And as you build it out, you want to always be mindful of the different audiences. You want to be mindful of how a singular piece of communication might affect your, that that's aimed at your customers, might be perceived if it were read by your investors, how it might be perceived if it were read by your employees. There's going to be some differences in how you communicate to those different audiences. There's also going to be different times and, and, and things that you need to say to those different audiences. At the end of the day, it's important to remember that you also need to be authentic across the board. You need to be authentic to your customers, you need to be authentic to your investors, you need to be authentic to your employees, and most importantly, you have to be authentic to yourself. The only way to to make sure that you are authentic to yourself is to have your brand visible at every juncture, at every step of the way. You've got to be authentic to all these different audiences. It's a great point. Thank you, Jack. Uh, much appreciated. Thanks for all your insights on this. Um, another takeaway for me would be it's very hard to build a great business without having a, a fantastic brand because a brand, as you said, shortens the distance between you and your customers, uh, potential employees as well, talent, investors, etc. So a great brand is you know, it's like a magnet that attracts the right opportunities, deters the wrong kind of opportunities, feels authentic, and just you know, makes it way easier for you to compete in the market because you will manage to put associations in people's head that they like and uh, that they get the right associations. They know what your company believes in, also what your company and brand promises. Uh, and they, they will know that, you know, okay, this is for me. This is for me. And this is, uh, I think, very, very important. This is a brand for me. This is a company for me. And I want to test and try the product. What was the main takeaway for you? Thank you, Oliver. So fun to do this with you. Um, for me, the biggest takeaway was actually about getting help from others as you build out your brand, as you want to test out your brand hypothesis. There's a whole natural body of people aligned with you who want to see you succeed. And I don't just mean your parents. I'm talking about your investors, your customers, your employees. These are all people who can help you figure out if your brand is true to its values, if you are building the right brand for your company today for the right time. Wonderful. Thank you, Jack, and uh, hope to see you for next week.